This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Uh, our show, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, our focus, contemporary spirituality. Our guest today, uh, Dr. Diana Butler-Bass. She uh, is a historian focusing on the history of Christianity and a leading voice in progressive Christianity. Uh, she has her Ph.D. from Duke University in Religious Studies. Uh, she is well-written. She's been on uh, the top radio TV shows and uh, has a book out. I think it's her eighth or ninth book, and uh, all of them very highly acclaimed and uh, well-reviewed. Uh, her new book, Grateful, The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks. And let me begin by thanking you, Diana, for taking the time <laughs> to come on with us today. Well, I appreciate being with you. And uh, guess what? It's number ten. Number I'm in double. I'm in double digits with books now. Wow! <laughs> oh, that's great. Good for you, um, Diana. Um, I'm really happy that we were able to arrange this. Um, you and I met a couple of months ago at a very interesting conference, and in chatting with you, I thought, well, let's get this person on our show, not just to talk about uh, your new book about gratitude, but um, you have a lot of interesting things to say about spiritual and religious history and um, especially recent history. Um, so maybe we can begin with a kind of overview for readers who are not, uh, listeners rather, who are not familiar with you. Um, Tell us a bit about your spiritual background and what drew you to the study of religion and religious history and uh, how you came to uh, where you are today in, in a few minutes. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I actually wrote a memoir uh, when I was 40, which is probably way too young to write a spiritual memoir. <laughs> <laughs> but... In there, I talk about how I was born and raised uh, in a Methodist church. And I, I really actually think that some people have sort of, I don't know, spiritual DNA that is much more uh, sort of alive and awake to these issues from the time they're little. And so, so I can remember being interested in questions about God and whether or not there was life after death and what, what is the meaning and purpose of, of life for as long as I can remember. Um, I literally asked my mom a question about what would happen after we died when I was about six years old because I was up really late at night worrying about the question. Uh -huh. <laughs> so these kinds of things have just been part of me. So, so like, as I mentioned a moment ago, I was born and raised into a, a Methodist family. I was baptized as a, as an infant, as that tradition does. And, um, as I've gone through my life, I've found out a, a lot of really interesting things about my family history. And I, I think the most pressing one to, in terms of your question is that for as many generations as I can figure out in my family, the women in my family have had incredibly high spiritual awareness. 
Mm. And um, that goes from everything from one of my ancestors who was a Quaker to another one who was an abolitionist, feminist, temperance leader in the 19th century, uh, to my own grandmother who had a gift of second sight that she could actually see things before they happened. Um, so, and all of this appears somehow in the family line to trace back to the mid 1600s when I had a ancestress who was hanged for witchcraft. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, I think that it's just part of who I am that the women in my family have this high degree of spiritual awareness are very intuitive and um, inquisitive, curious, and have also maintained a, a sort of a set of spiritual practices through the generations that continues to have an impact on me. Well, Diana, let me uh, ask you, before we talk about the book, and I want to get into that real soon, um, but before we do, I'm very curious. You're obviously an extremely intelligent person, studied religion, uh, started out as a Methodist, identified as a, an evangelical for quite some time, you talk about, uh, I think, uh, been associated with some, you know, very deep thinkers. I think Jim Wallace, Wallace and, and uh, uh, others, uh, George uh, Marston, uh, uh, you studied with. Um, people like yourself that are not only scholars of religions, but actually pr practitioners in religion, uh, uh, are very curious to me because I've drifted more and more toward being agnostic. I have a Catholic background, maybe that's why. And uh, <laughs> and but but the one thing that people of religious practice like yourself have, I hear them say over and over again, and I, I've said it myself, even though I'm not sure what I meant when I said it, that they were people of faith, that they have faith, and that's what keeps them going. Are you a person of faith, and how would you define faith? Yes, I I am a person who has uh, what I would call a, a, a lively curiosity and even to use the sort of the evangelical language that I used for many years in my life, uh, a relationship with the divine. Um, and so I, th I think that faith is that sense of trust or devotion uh, by which we look towards things that are not always clearly seen but have the capacity to believe that there is love and compassion um, in the universe and that that is a trustworthy energy that is at the center of all that is um, that is what I understand to be the divine that is what I understand to be to be God um, as a Christian person i I trust that that energy was in some very special way uh, brought into human form uh, through Jesus and um, that the model of Jesus is there for me to live by and um, to uh, learn the stories and the teachings of Jesus and then to pass those down and celebrate those things mm -hmm. ritually, ritually in my own life. Um, so, so those are some of the definitions that I carry right now about faith, uh, that it's about a relationship with a capacity that is beyond us in some ways to fully understand, um, and that we can be, we can trust uh, that that 
that energy um, exists uh, in a loving fashion towards all of creation. Mm -hmm. Thank Anna, you. My, I, I have a, a, a sense from looking at your bio and the uh, titles of your books and the brief conversations we had that your uh, concept of religion and your own relationship to your uh, faith tradition uh, ha underwent a lot of change in your adult life. Can you discuss that um, and some of the reasons for, for those changes? Yeah, I think it's really uh, interesting that you pointed out the evangelical part of my, my background. And I guess in some ways that is the most obvious part of of my spiritual biography, because the Methodist tradition came out of uh, 18th century evangelicalism. And, and then when I was a teenager, I was very influenced by the evangelical revival in the United States in the mid-1970s. It was a very sort of powerful spiritual renewal of evangelical faith. And so I had, at age 15, a conversion experience into that particular expression um, of evangelicalism. But it really only lasted for me about 15 years. <laughs> uh, by, the time, by the time I got to be 30, um, I was asking a lot of questions about, uh, really there were two sets of things that were bothering me about the evangelical subculture in the United States. Uh, one, as I was concerned about its uh, just persistent sexism and um, how the hierarchical sorts of structures of evangelicalism, even though they promised liberation and freedom uh, to all people, uh, that includes women and persons of color, they still were em just embroiled in this kind of culture where white men were at the top and everybody else was at the bottom. And, and I, I experienced that very strongly the further I got into leadership in the evangelical subculture. It wasn't so much a, trouble, a problem when I was like a 15-year-old teenage girl, but by the time I was a 30-year-old woman getting a PhD in religious studies and was an evangelical, finding myself consistently excluded and demeaned uh, by evangelical male leaders was uh, painful and problematic. Uh, so that, that was one part of it. And then the other part was the sort of the political and intellectual questions that arose for me. I never fully believed um, in what evangelicals refer to as the inerrancy of scripture, a, a very narrow way of interpreting the Bible. And I've been disturbed by the political theology of evangelicalism since the 1980s. So those two things uh, conspired to get me to think about who I really was religiously. Mm -hmm. And uh, I <laughs> wandered around a little bit and uh, eventually found myself in a, an amazing Episcopal church in Santa Barbara, California. And um, that became the template, the, the sort of the, the place where my really, truly adult journey of faith um, uh, changed. And uh, the Episcopal Church and its ability to embrace a really wide range of theological positions and also to hold within a beautiful liturgical framework a broad range of uh, spiritual experiences about our encounters with God. Mm -hmm. um, 
that that was really appealing to me. So you could be part of a community and part of a tradition, and yet there was room for exploration and questions. And it's a very um, what I would call non-judgmental uh, uh, sort of religious tradition. Mm-hmm. So, so that's that was where things really began to change mm-hmm. for me. In the long tradition of California. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> That's right. California spiritual transformation. Yeah, uh, Diana, <laughs> uh, your book, "Grateful: The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks," did that come from some the, the inspiration to do this? Your, your latest book, did that come from some spiritual experience, or is it something that you've been thinking about for a long time? And uh, where did that? Uh, the, the, where were the seeds? Uh, 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 you know, what were the seeds of this book? Where, where did it come from? Um, the book that I wrote right before Grateful was a book called Grounded. Mm-hmm. And um, in certain ways, I think it is the most theologically revolutionary book that I ever wrote. It's a, it's, It has a memoir element, but it's very much about a theology of what is called in sort of technical religious terms, uh, panentheism. And that is the idea that God is with us. Um mm-hmm. And, and God being with and through uh, the whole of the created order. And so um, I, I wanted to write a spiritual memoir slash kind of an eco-theology uh, that took that seriously. And so in Grounded, I uh, relocate um, my own understanding of God uh, with neighbor and in nature. And, and that book really speaks to the heart of where I am right now. Um, when I went back, read it about two years after I'd written it, one of the things that I noticed is that all through that book, I said things like, oh, I'm so grateful. Or, you know, I, I was on the beach and I was praying and I f- fell down onto my knees and said thank you to, the, to God and the universe. And when I wrote Grounded, I didn't intend to write so much about gratitude. And I, it was just writing about gratitude was the natural expression of this this theology that I was putting out in the world in Grounded. And I was really startled by it because I had never really thought of myself as a particularly grateful person. And so I began to reflect on the relationship of a, of a, mat- a maturing theological vision and uh, this sort of spiritual revolution I've been through myself um, with the practice of gratitude and what those two things had in common. And so I really wanted to write a book about, about being grateful um, in particular mm-hmm. and, and, learn, and learn from it, see where it would take me if I started paying attention to something that I had only sort of accidentally practiced in the past. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, Diana, a lot has been said and written about the benefits of gratitude in terms of uh, Uh, empirical studies about uh, health benefits and psychological benefits. In fact, we've had some people on the show talking about that. Uh, You're very candid in your opening to uh, your book um, about gratitude not being all that easy to practice. Can you talk about that? Why is it not necessarily an easy thing for us to do? 
<laughs> you know, the the first uh, working title of the book, and I, I, I still wish it would have been called this, uh, was was uh, No Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I can see why the or or, or or you could have called it Thanks, but No Thanks. <laughs> yeah, something to that effect, you know, because yeah. it, it, it's a little snarky and it kind of right. gets to the point. <laughs> Um, you know, cause I really am the accidental gratitude lady. Um, and, uh, and so I just, kind of, I, I just, when I was working on the project, I had to be honest with my readers, you know, is that this was not something that I was terribly good at, that I was, this was something I was learning. And, um, I was also learning it at a really difficult time. Um, in some ways, it's a really weird thing to pick up a new spiritual practice when you're staring down the barrel at your 60th birthday, which is uh, <laughs> still a few months away from me. Um, but, you know, people tend to think, oh, you know, if I'm not good at something by the time I'm 40, I'm never going to be good at it, you know. Oh and uh, I know, isn't that it's but it's amazing. So many of my younger friends say, oh, I just could never do that because I'm too old. And so uh, so to pick up a new spiritual practice um, now. Um, I think is a was a learning experience for me, and it can be for readers as well. Um, and uh, I just, I just really wanted to, you know, have an honest uh, spiritual journey. And uh, I did, of course, learn all the stuff about the health benefits, and that's pretty wonderful. And there are some amazing um, mm -hmm. books, books on that. Uh, but uh, you know, there were sort of two parts of the book that I. Uh, feel like are really important one is that personal piece about the the resilience that gra gratitude helps us to be more resilient people and that's really about health and well-being and spiritual depth and all that kind of thing that we can develop personally uh, but then the second part of the book I argue something that I, I actually saw no very very few other people argue and that is um, gratitude can also be really a powerful practice of fighting injustice and oppression um, in democratic societies. And um, so I move it from resilience uh, towards resistance, and it becomes a very mealy and I think kind of an unusual book on gratitude. Right. Let, let me uh, interrupt you there. I, I'm very curious. Uh, how does gratitude um, uh, uh, affect or, or enhance resistance in a democratic society? How is gratitude used uh, if one wants to resist the current regime or, or what's going on uh, politically? Um, I was writing the book at the very, uh, in the very first se several months of uh, Donald Trump being president of the United States. And um, as a woman who participated in the Women's March, you could say that I was not grateful uh, for, for uh, mm -hmm. that particular election. And so it was really fascinating to be writing a book, one, where I was learning a personal spiritual practice, and two, uh, during this time of incredible political and social challenges um, in the place where I live. Um, and I happen to live outside of Washington, D.C., on top of everything else. Um, so what I, what I discovered is that gratitude has sometimes been used as an oppressive practice in society. That um, when a person who's sort of at the top of a social pyramid tells people underneath, 
it's usually underneath of him as the leader, uh, that they have to be grateful for whatever has been, mm-hmm. quote unquote, quote unquote, given to them by the people in charge. Um, gratitude becomes a mechanism of social control. And uh, we often see that with um, the current president uh, in his Twitter account mm-hmm. is often accusing people of being ingrates and um, telling people that they should say thank you to him. And he gets angry if he does not feel like people have been appropriately appreciative of what he feels like he has done. So that obviously is not how it's supposed to be used. Um, But what I feel like um, is the, is not, is the more realistic and the truer expression of gratitude is not gratitude as something that people at the top of a social pyramid, not the gifts people at the top of a social pyramid give to everyone else, but it's the gifts that the universe have given to all of us in order that we are alive, that we eat, that we can love, that we can breathe, um, is that gifts are not scarce and they are not just distributed by people who are at the top of society. Gifts are abundant and they are literally the inheritance of every single human being that is born. And it is our job uh, to share those gifts and to make sure that the way is open so that every other human being can freely embrace the gifts of the universe or God, depending on how, whether you're humanist or a theist, um, gives to all of us. And so in a, in a very real sense, gift giving, the gift giving of the universe is completely benevolent. It is completely um, uh, without a sense of demand. It expects nothing in return, and the the gifts are of abundance are available to literally all of us. And so, in that sense, uh, the gift the gift giving that is present as part of the very being of creation um, undoes uh, visions of scarcity and control. Um, and I think that's why the idea of grace or free gifts is so upsetting to some people mm-hmm. because it's if there really is grace, if there really is abundance, if there really are free gifts that are available to the whole of the a whole of creation, uh, well, then what does that do to the idea of a one percent or an oligarchy or a Caesar? It unhinges their power, mm. and, and so to understand gifts correctly and the way in which grace and gratitude function uh, throughout the universe is a deeply politically empowering um, reality. That's fascinating. Uh, Diana, what would you say uh, from a sort of theological or conceptual uh, framework, um, if, if you uh, to speak about the universe uh, abundantly bestowing gifts upon us, how do you respond when people say, yeah, well, m- you know, my kid has cancer or, you know, my house was destroyed by an earthquake or a flood or, you know, people are starving and people are refugees seeking asylum. Uh, those don't seem like gifts. How do you deal with the obvious tragedies and um, suffering in that context? Um, in the In the book, I actually very early on tell a few stories of my own life that are related to violence and suffering. I mm. share, share my own 
for example, Me Too story of when I was 14 years old and I was abused by an uncle. Mm. And um, I've, I wrote about it in the book, and I, I did a separate piece for the On Being blog um, about the same event. And the reason I decided to tell that story was that I wanted people to make sure that they, that they knew that they were not reading a book on gratitude by a, a white woman with privilege who, mm. was, who was not attending to the kinds of issues that you just raised. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my own struggle there has been profound over, over decades. I think it's one of the reasons why I had a lot of trouble understanding gratitude. Um, but the conclusion that I come to in the book is uh, twofold. One, there's a wonderful book called Gra- Radical Gratitude. It was probably one of my favorite books I read when I was doing my research by a Catholic nun named Mary Jo Letty. Uh, she's Canadian. And uh, in that book, she talks about how a practice of gratitude does not dispel the mystery of suffering. As a matter of fact, it may well deepen it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, in your research, uh, are there cultures uh, in the world where gratitude is more uh, uh, structured into that culture uh, than other cultures, and in those cultures where gratitude is more part of, of that culture, uh, are the, the people uh, uh, belonging to those cultures happier? Uh, the, the answer is yes. <laughs> so all, of, all of the above. Okay. And I think, I think it goes to the second half of you know, sort of Phil's question, too, right. is that oftentimes cultures and communities that have been on the short end of oppression and injustice are cultures that have higher degrees of, of gratitude. And it's, it, that's not to excuse the injustice, you know, that is being inflicted on the pawn people in those situations. As a matter of fact, it sort of stands mm-hmm. as a condemnation to those who would choose to inflict injustices on those communities. Uh, but a great example would be, um, say, for example, in the United States, um, is that African-American uh, religious culture in particular has... It's, it, Thanksgiving and gratitude are so deeply embedded in the cultural and theological languages of African-American uh, religious life that you almost can't point to it as a separate category. Um, I called a couple of friends while I was working on this book uh, who are African-American uh, pastors, and I said, can you a book uh, written by African-American theologian on, uh, on gratitude. And every one of them said the same thing to a person. They said, well, I can't give you a book, but if you spend some time listening to the music, you'll figure it out. Oh, right. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> right, right. And I, I thought that was absolutely amazing because that was really true. It wasn't, it wasn't like you had to say, oh, look, there's the African-American interpretation of gratitude. But instead, gratitude mm-hmm. is just part of the the lingua franca. Let me ask a, a follow-up question on that. Uh, thinking sure. of African-American uh, 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 spiritual practice or what goes on in, in say, a Baptist church, uh, and that is there is a great expression, if you listen to the music, of joy, of happiness, of gratitude, but there's also the, uh, a tremendous opportunity uh, through that music uh, to express the deep sorrows and pains and mm-hmm. fears and what we've been through and and uh, that part of it as well. So does the the ability to uh, uh, express sorrow uh, go hand in hand with the 
uh, importance of being uh, grateful? Um, it does seem that in a lot of Anglo uh, cultural settings, gratitude is viewed more as a sort of a, a secular prosperity gospel in a mm -hmm. sense. That is, if you're grateful, you're going to be healthy and you're going to be rich. And so if you just say, thank you, thank you, thank you enough, everything is going to go well for you. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's part of the corruption of gratitude mm -hmm. that comes out of out of that you know, sort of pyramid structure of right. gratitude. Interesting. Um, yes. And and so what happens is when you've been on the sort of the receiving end of, of a corrupted form of gratitude, as African-Americans have been for many centuries, gratitude was used against them, um, particularly during slavery. It was institutionalized against them and then has often been used against them in, in the, the decades since by white people on top saying, you should appreciate that, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and in the 19th century, uh, black people in the United States were told that that the they should appreciate their status as slaves because the slaveholders had done them a great favor by bringing them from Africa and introducing mm -hmm. them to Christianity. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and if that isn't like the ultimate corruption mm -hmm. of grat gratitude, I don't know what yeah, is. Really. Right. Yeah, right. And so what you point out uh, is that, um, you know, so you have the, 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 the freedom and the joy and the happiness piece that emerges out of gratefulness that comes through African-American Christianity, it's not because of what they were told to be grateful for. It's because they knew that they were alive and they were fully human and mm. that they had dignity and they had breath and they could love and they had all these, all of these gifts despite what the corruptions of gratitude had told them. And so there was this deeply celebrative um, aspect of humanity that emerged as gratitude in African-American spirituality. Um, but then on the other hand, the beautiful piece of that is to be able to say, just as you said, is to be able to recognize the corruptions of gratitude and to say no to that. Mm -hmm. um, to, say, to say that that was something that caused uh, suffering and pain. Mm -hmm. And it's it's the, the, the paired recognition of both the dignity of humanity and the gifts of abundance that are in the universe despite suffering and the honest recognition of the suffering. I think that's profoundly empowering. Mm -hmm. I, I find it fascinating, Diana, that you're indicating that sometimes uh, oppressed populations, people at the sort of bottom of a social and uh, economic structure might be more uh, open to gratitude than people who have relatively uh, uh, privileged or uh, un lives of comfort and so forth. How much, how much does envy factor in? You know, Shakespeare called it the green-eyed monster, and it would seem to. I hear a lot of mm -hmm. ungrateful people, people complaining all the time, who really, on a relative scale of things, have it pretty good, uh, but. At the same time, they see a lot of people who have what they don't have. How much does envy factor in? Uh, most of the people who study gratitude for a, a living, the people who are psychologists and philosophers, uh, say that envy, entitlement, uh, grievance, despair, depression, and, um, uh, and fear are the main emotions that block 
uh, mm. gratitude, that block gratitude. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Diana, uh, uh, any final points that uh, you'd like to make to our listeners and fill any final questions that you yeah, might have? Yeah, I do. I would like, there's a couple of things that I still have left. Mm-hmm. Maybe Diana can address both. Uh, we have a few minutes. Um, one is you mentioned in, in your book uh, a few different kinds of gratitude, and I wonder if you could outline them. And the other is to please leave our listeners with some practical advice about cultivating gratitude and the, and the skills that are required. Um, in the book, I talk about four, the four shapes that gratitude really takes in our lives. And uh, one is around uh, us, each one of us, as individuals and our emotional life. That is what we feel when we get a present or we see a sunrise or something amazing happens. And so it's me and and emotions. And those emotions are life-giving. And those are the things that um, psychologists remind us uh, cause good outcomes for us as human beings. So the more we have those emotions, uh, the better off we are uh, psychologically and spiritually. And then the the next uh, uh, sort of shape that uh, gratitude takes in our lives is each one of us and our ethics. And that is how do we move from just the emotion of gratitude towards a uh, practice of gratitude? What actions do we do um, in relationship to receiving gifts and giving gifts? And, uh, you know, that includes everything from uh, sending thank you notes to giving random gifts of appreciation to people who have done good things to us to passing on um, uh, our sense of appreciation in the universe just sort of randomly to strangers. What do we do in relationship to to gifts? And, and then uh, I move it into the last uh, two uh, parts of this fourfold um, definition where I talk about we, what happens with a group of people, um, a church, a synagogue, a spiritual group, uh, uh, a business community, a town, a neighborhood, whatever. Um, h- how do we feel grateful together? And, and in that situation, I talk about how play actually engenders gratitude and um, festivity and, and public um, expressions of joy are often about thankfulness and communal gratitude. And fi- the final uh, piece of the book is looking at we and a gratitude of, uh, and our ethics of gratitude. And so in that section of the book, I, I talk about what would it look like um, if, as a people, we could think about a politics of gratitude. What, mm-hmm. would, a, what would a politics of abundance really look like and would if we understood gratitude correctly uh, would it help us to change course off of this um i think right now we've really developed culture a a political culture of fear and grievance um and i'm wondering if we began to really speak a language of appreciation and thanksgiving and gratitude and abundance in the public square um, how that might change things and would it draw us back toward one another um, in a time of division? And so those are the four pieces mm-hmm. of, of gratitude that I explore in the book. Very um, good. Yeah, it was a, 
it was an amazing project and it took me to places that I literally did not anticipate. Um, Mm -hmm. When I started writing the book, I thought, how in the world am I going to write more than 20 pages (laughs) on this subject? (laughs) I have that with every book. (laughs) Either that or how am I going to write less than 500? Yeah, and that's where I wound up. (laughs) There's there's no middle (laughs) ground. How could I keep this to 200 pages? Yeah. And and so it was a real joy. And when people ask me what to do practically, um, I just I encourage people to start with whatever feels right to them. You know, there's so many times you listen to people um, who are sort of health and wealth, health and wellness gurus or, you know, great right. psychologists or spiritual leaders. And they say, you know, do these 10 things or whatever. And some of those are very helpful. Um, but I, I try to I, I always ask my readers, you know, think about who you are and what you resonate with. Um, and so for me, the, in my fourfold structure, I resonate very deeply with Individ- my individual emotional capacity of gratitude. And so I, I spend time exploring that and making sure that that is cultivated well. And from what I feel strong with, then I can move out into these other three areas of gratitude and, and ask questions about my own life. Is my life balanced? For all that I feel grateful, am I also expressing that through practical actions that help me to sustain a life of gratitude? Um, do I let people mm-hmm. know I'm grateful for them? And then how do I participate in communities where gratitude is expressed through play and joy and festivity? And how am I enacting a political life that is based in abundance and gratitude and not um, scarcity and fear. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, when it comes to listeners, start where you're strong and then explore the places that you need to grow and have this more balanced life. And, and if you feel strong, uh, challenge yourself, you know, go outside your own box. Mm-hmm. Uh, pick some, pick something you wouldn't normally be comfortable at doing, um, and 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 try doing that, and see where it takes you. Uh, so I tend to be gentle and pastoral when I'm encouraging people to grow in a spiritual practice. Okay. Diana, thank you so very much. Again, the book "Grateful: The Transformative Power of Giving Thanks" by Diana Butler Bass, and we'll have that all posted up on our. Uh, blog, uh, podcast, and uh, uh, we look forward to having you back on sometime. Oh, th- thanks so much. It's really uh, good to share this with you. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Diana, uh, you're, you're, it says in your uh, notes that being hugged can trigger feelings of gratitude. So uh, Dennis and I are each 3,000 <laughs> miles away from you in direction uh-huh. to d- both east and west so we send you a hug right um from the extreme ends of uh, the planet there you go <laughs> we get almost the world covered yeah. oh thank you i feel i i've got a big smile on my face feeling that <laughs> okay <laughs> thank you all right thanks again